0: Cricket ACT acknowledges the Ngunnawal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet and play, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal nation, both past and present. We also value the contribution that other diverse cultures, identities and lifestyles make to our region, which ultimately enhances the richness of our society and cricket community.
1: G'day all and welcome to episode two of a six part Glory Days podcast series, reflecting back on the first 100 years of cricket in the ACT from 1922 to current day. In this episode, we take a look at the period between the end of World War II to the mid 60s. I hope you enjoy what has been a remarkable journey in the nation's capital of Australia's favorite summer game, cricket.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the Prime Minister of the Commonwealth of Australia, Mr. J.B. Chifley. Fellow citizens, the war is over. The Japanese government has accepted the terms of surrender imposed by the Allied nations and hostilities will now cease. The reply by the Japanese government to the note sent by Britain, the United Nations, the U.S., SR, and China has been received and accepted by the Allied Nations. At this moment, let us offer thanks to God. Let us remember those whose lives were given that we may enjoy this glorious moment and may look forward to a peace which they have won for us. Let us remember those whose thoughts with proud sorrow turn towards gallant loved ones who will not come back. On behalf of the people and the government of Australia, I offer humble thanks to the fighting men of the United Nations, whose gallantry sacrifice and devotion to duty have brought us the victory. Nothing can fully repay the debt we owe them.
1: Current ACT representative Captain Rhys Healy pays tribute to ACT cricketers lost during World War II.
3: Many ACT grade cricketers served in all conflicts, including a significant number who played for the Royal Military College while they were part of the ACT first grade competition. Five ACT cricketers paid the ultimate sacrifice, four during World War II and one during the peacekeeping mission in Pakistan. Mel Crombie was well known in Canberra as the secretary of the Northbourne Cricket Club and the assistant secretary of the ACTCA. He was captured in Java and made a prisoner of war where he passed away working on the Burma railway in 1943. William Worthy fought on the Kokoda track with his battalion rising to the rank of corporal. He was killed on active service with the 3rd Australian Infantry Battalion at GONA in Papua New Guinea on the 26th of November 1942. He's buried in the Port Moresby War Cemetery. His twin brother Leslie also died on active service in March 1942. Edward Jones, a flight sergeant, died while flying a RAF boomerang operating out of the Strathpine airfield in southern Queensland he crashed into the sea east of Caloundra in November 1943. Wally Pfaff Hall, who after serving with the 2nd 2nd Australian Infantry Battalion in the Middle East in 1941, moved with the AAF to Papua, where he saw action on the Kokoda track. He was killed during combat on the 18th of November 1942 and is buried at the Kokoda War Cemetery. Robert Nemo died of a heart attack at Rawalpindi, Pakistan, while he was acting as a Chief Military Observer to the United Nations Military Observer Group in India and Pakistan. He had served in Gallipoli and then in Palestine in World War I. He also served in various command positions as Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel and Brigadier in New Guinea. The ordered and settled
1: life of Australian country towns enjoyed before the war was not easily restored. Canberra was no different, with visitors seeing an incomplete city, apparently without form or future. The passenger terminal in the airport was a wooden shed. The roads into the city were narrow and poorly serviced. Unsightly wooden hostels were dotted here and there. The view of the war memorial from Civic was across a large rubbish dump in what is now the suburb of Campbell. And ugly heaps of smashed concrete, known by the locals as Stonehenge, littered the site now occupied by the National Gallery. The population of 15,000 in 1947 lived in suburbs, isolated from each other and the Civic Centre. Some regarded themselves as temporary citizens, waiting for a transfer back to headquarters in Melbourne. Despite all its disadvantages, it was a pleasant city in which to live. Recovery from the effects of war was slow and crickets suffered more than most community activities for a number of years. A major issue was the shortage of equipment to prepare wickets and upkeep of playing fields, while building restrictions made it impossible to repair or replace antiquated facilities. Petrol rationing made it difficult to travel far afield. Two ACT cricketers, Jack Fingleton and Fred Johnston, were missing a state selection trial in Sydney because they could not access any transport. Prior to World War II in July 1938, The Acts of the Commonwealth Parliament were changed to designate the territory of the Australian Capital Territory and thereafter the Cricket Association referred to itself as the ACT Cricket Association. However, it was not until eight years later at the AGM on August 26, 1946 that the association altered its constitution to give formal effect to the change of that name. The financial situation of the association was another factor in limiting activities. The association's credit balance in 1948 was the equivalent of $232. The affiliation fees paid by the clubs were virtually the sole means by which the association was able to pay its expenses for the year. The financial situation of the clubs was no better. Most charged a membership fee of $4 and a match fee of 50 cents for its senior players. Most clubs had a windfall income from housie or Bingo as it's known. Some clubs found themselves unexpectedly popular, with the Kingston Club's annual report showing a profit of over $1,600 in one season from housie. In 1950, a cricket bat cost about $11, a set of stumps, $4, and a four-piece cricket ball, $2.25. It was the home team's duty to supply a new ball for each match, with most clubs using about 40 balls per season. Cricket did resume in 1945-46, but not at the highest grade, district. No premierships were awarded, but Manica was clearly the best side in the competition, with former Test Opening batsman Jack Fingleton in their side as captain, and with three centuries during the season, played a major role in the team's success. Over the next couple of years, Fingleton made rare appearances for Monica as he spent this time as a travelling journalist with the MCC team in 1946-47 under Wally Hammond for several newspapers. These journalistic commitments also impacted his ability to serve his role as recently elected president of the association. Fingleton had played 18 Test matches, scoring 1189 runs at an average of 42.4. He settled permanently in Canberra when he became a member of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. At age just 36 and with plenty of cricket still in him, post his test career, he joined the Manica Club. Former BBC commentator Henry blowfield tells a funny Jack Fingerling story from the 1936-37 Ashes series. One wonderful story which really is
4: not... Particularly relevant Test match special, but it was a lovely story because Jack Fingleton was a, was a, about Roman, early Roman, as were many of the Australian side, McCormick, O'Brien, Fingleton, O'Reilly. There were, there were about five or six of them in the thirties. And in thirty, after the body line tour, thirty-six, seven, Gabby Allen's side went like that, won a couple of tests, the first two, and then lost the last three, rather clumsily. And um, Jack Fingleton hadn't made a run opening the back in the first two Test matches and he was picked for the third. And he went down to Melbourne, a a little bit ahead of the rest of the Australian side. And he took his bat off to um, the Archbishop of Melbourne, had it sprinkled with holy water. And Australia won the toss and batted first. And Fingleton went in, I think, with Lee O'Brien and got out fairly quickly. And Bradman, always oh, was a boy with free, usually went down the long steps to the, uh, the MCG and passed the incoming batsman on the steps. But This time he waited in the dressing room until Fingleton got in. And then as he did, he picked up his own bat and said, well, boys, he said in that squeaky voice, he said, I will and see what I can do with a dry one. And he... <laughs> <laughs> And he, he, made, he made 256. Like <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was not until 1946-47 that formal competition was resumed, with the following teams making up the A-grade district competition. Ainslie, Kingston, Marnica, Northbourne, Queen Beane, Royal Military College. Kingston won the very first premiership on return and was the start of a successful period where they won seven of the 19 premierships from 1946 to 1964. No club champion was recognised in the first three years after the war. While Kingston were dominant, another six clubs won premierships in the 19 years, with Ainslie winning four and Turner three. The club champion award was won most by Turner with five, while Ainslie, Kingston and Anne won three each. Northbourne were winners twice. The most memorable grand final for the era was the 1959-60 Douglas Cup decider between Ainsley and Manuka Yarralumla, who were merged in 1953 after a redrawing of the residential boundaries. Manuka Yarralumla were the minor premiers going into the grand final, while Ainsley had to defeat Anne in the final match of the season to earn the right to play the minor premiers. Both teams had many representative players in the ACT side as well, as a few key imports. Marnika Yaralumla's best was former Ceylon and Nottinghamshire first class player Gamini Gunasina, a leg spinner and right-handed batsman. After leaving Canberra, he moved to Sydney where he represented New South Wales on seven occasions. The Ainsley side had strong recruits as well. Brian Jones, better known as Barney, who was a fast bowler from Melbourne where he played for Carlton in the VCA first grade and for Carlton reserves in the VFL. He was however better known in later years as the father of former Australian international Dean Jones who sadly passed away in September 2020. The match scheduled for three days started on Saturday, April 2, with the Governor-General, Viscount Dunrossil, in attendance. Ainsley won the toss and invited Monica Yaralumla to have a bat on a wet wicket. Barney Jones and Ian Lees tore the minor premiers apart in the tricky conditions, bowling them out for just 19. Lees finishing with the remarkable figures of 6 for 6. At stumps on day one, Ainsley had fared marginally better, being 7 for 53, with Bill Heath having taken all seven wickets. It took just 20 minutes on the second morning for Ainsley to be dismissed for 65, a lead of 46 runs. He finished with 8 for 31, while Barney Jones top-scored with an unbeaten 28. An improved batting effort by Manika Yaralumla had them reach stumps on day two at 6 for 116, an overall lead of 70 runs. Gunasena top-scored with a game high 30. Day three commenced with the Prime Minister Robert Menzies in attendance. The innings did not last long, with the last three wickets adding 15. To see Marnika Yaralumla all out for 131, leaving Ainsley 86 runs to win the match outright and the premiership. Ainsley started badly, losing a wicket immediately, and when Gunasena took the big wicket of Barney Jones, they were 4 for 31, still needing 56 for victory. Key batters, Brian James and Alan Hawke were at the crease and added 10 more runs before Gunasena dismissed both of them. The last pair had added 10 runs, to get within 10 runs of victory, before Gunasena took his seventh wicket of the innings to dismiss Ainsley for 76, meaning Marnika Yarralumla had won its first ever premiership by nine runs after having been bowled out for 19 on day one. The period from cricket resuming after the war to the mid-1960s had stability across the association's leadership, with three men, Roy Kapler, Ian Emerton and Charles Morrison, holding the presidency for all but one year. Kapler completed his 18-year stint in 1946-47. Emerton began an eight-year stint from 1948 and Morrison started the first of his 10 years in 1956. Roy Kapler, who remained president of the association during the war years after starting in 1929-30 season, was keen to step down from the role but with no other nominees at the August 1946 AGM, he called for a two-week adjournment of the meeting for others to consider and seek nominations for the role of president. It was futile. Again, he was the only nominee and he agreed to continue temporarily. A year later, former Australian test batsman, Jack Fingleton was elected president with Kapler staying on in a patron role. Fingleton had a long association with Monica Oval. He played in the first ever match there when Dr Neil Blue brought a team from Sydney for the Easter Carnival in 1930. After starting his presidency enthusiastically and gaining the goodwill of everyone, he was again off traveling, this time to India for four months after just two months in the role. He was back home for less than two months and off again for the Ashes Tour of England in 1948 as a journalist. Unable to attend the 1948 AGM, the association appointed Vince Griffiths to the role of acting president. Griffiths did not wish to continue as president and Fingledon was not surprisingly nominated. The meeting with no nominations resolved to approach Ian Emerton to accept the presidency. It proved an excellent appointment with Emerton staying in the role for eight seasons. Emerton was deputy clerk of the Senate and later became secretary of the joint house department. He was a man of firm opinions which he was not frightened to express, and a deep love of cricket. He, as you'll hear later in this episode, played a huge role alongside Sir Robert Menzies in starting the Prime Minister Eleven matches. He played for Marnica, mainly in B grade in the 1930s, and was secretary of the Marnica Club and a delegate to the association from 1934 to 1939, as well as vice president of the association during the Second World War. He was elected a life member in August 1955. In the first six years after the war, the association had four presidents, seven secretaries and four treasurers. Many of these office bearers were young cricketers who were persuaded into the roles by either employers or senior officials at their clubs. Most had little interest in administration and were glad to escape the task as soon as possible. The Umpires Association had a rather hit-and-miss start prior to World War II, but eventually found some stability, as veteran ACT umpire Bill Roos explains.
5: Yeah, the uh, first Umpires Association was formed in November of 1929, when the then Federal Capital Territory Cricket Umpires Association was formed after some efforts by uh, Mr Williams that took him a couple of seasons. They had half a dozen members at the first meeting and a chap called Alf Butcher was elected as chairman and Thomas Williams secretary. This followed some informal discussions in September 28 of forming an umpires association and it met regularly during 29.30 season. As is often the case, there was a dispute at semi-final time where members of the umpires association withdrew their services because the cricket association wasn't willing to fully meet the fees for the umpires. In the next season, this dispute continued and the association eventually folded.
1: The man who had a significant involvement in the rebirth of the Umpires Association after the war was a guy called Vince Griffiths. After the
5: uh, war, and I guess before that, the Depression, Umpires Association was reformed in 1950 with, as you said, Vince Griffiths, president, and Arthur Cunning's and Mr A Bird, vice president. They uh, intended to affiliate with New South Wales Umpires Association, which I might point out we still are to this day, and arranged for tuition and exams of all members. Then the next season, Ernest Gordon had arranged examiners from New South Wales Association to visit Canberra to do testing, so all looked good. However, soon thereafter, the association passed into limbo the Cricket Association decided to take matters on themselves for recruitment and retention, classes, examinations. After the Secretary of the Umpires Association at a meeting raised no umpires were prepared to officiate as they were dissatisfied with the cooperation they'd have received the preceding season. More politics and dollars
1: (laughs) as ever. Another to have an impact on the further development of the standard of umpiring was Charles Morrison, as Bill Roos explains. Yeah, in 52, Charlie Morrison
5: became a member of the Executive Committee of ACT Cricket Association, and he asked why there was no association of umpires. Ian Emmerton, then the president of the ACT Cricket Association, suggested to Charlie that he form an association. The old, you raise the problem, you fix it. Morrison reasoned the association would be better accepted if its members competent cricketers and convinced Ned Custance and Austin Selleck both former ACT representative players to become qualified umpires they duly studied the laws and went to Sydney and got examined and became umpires through the New South Wales Cricket Umpires Association they then discovered that Mark Atkinson, who was a member of the previous association, was already a member of the New South Wales Cricket Umpires Association. In March 53, the four of them adopted a constitution based on New South Wales. Atkinson, President, Morrison, Secretary, Selick, Treasurer, Custance, the Assistant Secretary. By the following season, they had nine qualified umpires, had eight more qualified during the season. Charlie Morrison went on to umpire many rep matches, including PM's 11 in 54, a couple of country versus metropolitan matches. He later became president of the ACT Cricket Association. In the early 2000s, the now Umpires and Scorers Council renamed the annual Chairman's Award, presented to somebody for their contribution to the council, Founders Medal, in honour of these three gentlemen, and so it remains today. Perhaps unsupply all these gentlemen have
1: since passed away. By the beginning of the 1953-54 season, they had nine qualified umpires, including two first grade captains, Ron Metcalf and Kevin Flynn. Eight of the umpires were successful in becoming qualified by the season's end. The rate for the qualified umpires was set at $2 for a full day matches and $1.50 for an afternoon's duty. Similar to the umpires association, the women's game was also having its struggles to keep a sustainable competition going. As current cricket ACT board member Cindy Deeker explains.
0: Women's cricket lapsed after 1935, however a stimulus was given when advice was received that a New Zealand team would be visiting Canberra in March 1947. A team was brought together by the YWCA with two practice matches played against junior teams. New Zealand batted first and made six for 257. In reply, the Canberra side was bowled out for 21, of which 1935 captain Marjorie Moore, and again skipper of this team, top scored with seven not out. There was no regular club competition in 1948, but a Canberra side did travel to Sydney for Country Week Carnival. News was received at the end of 1948 that an English team captained by Holly Hyde would play a Southern Districts team at Marnica Oval in February 1949. Three Canberra players, Mrs M Larkham, Betty Lee and Gladys Locke, were chosen in the team. England batted first and declared at 4 for 220. In reply, the locals could only manage 45 and 5 for 28, with Larkham top scoring with 21. A YWCA team played several matches in 1950, but there was no more cricket for women for a number of years.
1: When district cricket resumed after the war, there was about a dozen players in district cricket who had played representative cricket prior to the war, who were still able to do so post-war. The others who played in 1946 were either old players with weary limbs and rusty joints, or young players whose hopes and ambitions outran their experience and wisdom. Leg spinner Fred Johnson became the first ACT player to be selected for New South Wales while playing in Canberra. He was playing for Manuka in 1945-46 when he was asked in February 1946 to bowl his slow medium leg spinners to Sid Barnes in the nets at the SCG. He was not selected after that trial, but a year later in 1946-47, and again in 47-48, while playing for Kingston, he was selected for New South Wales. He also represented Southern districts against the MCC in 1946. Johnson, who worked in the Education Department, was transferred back to Sydney with work in 1948, where he continued to play for New South Wales for several more years and was a member of the winning New South Wales Sheffield Shield side in 1948-49. No ACT cricketer in the 1950s and 60s equaled the accomplishments of Brian James. James lived in Yass and played Sunday cricket in the town. But each Saturday, he travelled to Canberra to play with Ainsley from 1954 to 1968 and one season, his last, with Northern Suburbs in 68-69. His finest performance for Ainsley was in the 1955-56 Grand Final when he made a patient 64 not out as Ainsley chased down Kingston's 116 on a soft wicket, getting the runs with three wickets to spare. He also played a leading role in the 1958-59 Ainsley Premiership win over Turner and again in the 1960-61 Premiership when he top scored with 70 in Ainsley's 222. He then took three wickets as Kingston was bowled out for 146. His final season, was a premiership with Northern Suburbs in 1968-69. James on five occasions played against touring test teams, three for the Prime Minister's 11, 1959 versus MCC, 1961 versus the West Indies and again in 1965 against the MCC and twice against the MCC in 1959 for Southern New South Wales and 1963 for Central New South Wales against the MCC. A hard-hitting left-handed middle order bat he was also a more than handy medium pace bowler he was in the new south wales sheffield shield practice squad for four years and played twice against new south wales when representing act another cricketer who moved to canberra from adelaide just before the war was fast bowler bruce robin who initially played with ainsley after service in the navy he returned to canberra in 1946 at the age of 25 and played four seasons at Marnica. Thereafter, he was one of the stalwarts of the Kingston Club. Robin became one of the all-time greats of ACT cricket and was inducted into the ACT Hall of Fame accordingly in 2021. His combined 13 seasons at Marnica and Kingston netted him 424 wickets, where he topped the ACT Cricket Association bowling averages on four occasions. In March 1954, he took all 10 wickets in innings against Royal Military College. It would be another 26 years before this was achieved again. In the 1954-55 grand final against Royal Military College, he took 7 for 9, while two years earlier, he took 9 for 11 against Marnica. Bruce Robin captained both ACT and Southern Districts Cricket Council in a stellar representative career that lasted 13 years, where he took 94 wickets. Highlights of his representative career were matches against the MCC in 1950 and the Prime Minister's Eleven game against the MCC in 1954. A teammate of Bruce Robin was another superb bowler, Jim Backen, who played in five premierships at Kingston and another with Turner in 1961-62. The pair, as you would imagine, formed a lethal opening attack. In the 1951-52 season, they took a combined total of 126 wickets. Backen's best season in club cricket were 45 wickets at 8.4 in 1949-50, 51 wickets at eight in the 1950-51 season, including one haul of eight for 27, and then an incredible 74 wickets in 1951-52 season, where in one match versus Queanbeyan, he took eight for 46 and eight for 33. Back in captain ACT Cricket Association on several occasions and played for Southern Districts Cricket Council against the MCC in 1950 and then against the MCC when playing for the Prime Minister's 11 in 1954. Another well-known figure in Australian history and politics was also a keen cricketer in Canberra. Andrew Barr, the Chief Minister for ACT, explains.
6: The 23rd Australian Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, moved to Canberra in 1956 after accepting a scholarship to undertake doctoral studies in the area of arbitration law in the Law Department of the Australian National University. A wicketkeeper batsman, Hawke had previously played first grade for the University of Western Australia in the Perth first grade competition between 1949 50 and 51 52. After graduating, he was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford University in 1952. While at Oxford, he played for the university cricket side and was close to being selected for the first class side, being named 12th man for one match. On moving to Canberra, Hawke initially played for the Northbourne side as the university side had not yet reached first grade status. He had a very successful season in 1956-57 with Northbourne leading their run aggregates with 416 runs at 27.73, in an era where run scoring was not easy. He passed 50 on one occasion, scoring 84 against the Royal Military College at Reid. He finished sixth overall in the first grade batting averages and was second overall in the batting aggregates for first grade. Hawke made his representative debut for the ACT in the Burns Cup against the Imlay Cricket Association, batting at three and scoring eight runs. He made two more representative matches that season against Monero and Mossman, but failed in both matches scoring only one in each match. Despite these failures with the bat, the ACT was victorious in retaining the Burns Cup, making it three seasons in a row as champions. A change in residential qualifications saw Hawke move to the Turner Cricket Club. It was a less successful change in clubs, resulting in him scoring only 179 runs at 17.90 in the 1957-58 season. Of that, 64 was scored in one innings against Ainsley in his first match for the new club. In representative matches in the summer of 57-58, he dropped down the order, batting at five. This proved to be more successful, scoring 31 in the match against Monero in Cooma, 17 not out against Goulburn, 22 against New Lambton, and then five against Mossman, and one against Crookwell. After this season, Hawke accepted an offer of a position as research officer with the Australian Council of Trade Unions and moved to Melbourne to take up the position, abandoning his doctoral studies at the ANU and curtailing his cricket career in Canberra. Hawke would of course later return to Canberra as the member for wills at the 1980 federal election and three years later became a resident of Canberra again at the Lodge as the 23rd Prime Minister of Australia. One of his first acts as Prime Minister was reinstating the Prime Minister's 11 series of matches.
1: The main representative competition within the Southern District Cricket Council that the ACT competed in prior to World War II, the Burns Cup for open teams and the Crookwell Cup for under-21 teams resumed in the 1945-46 season. It proved a very successful period for the ACT, winning nine of the Burns Cup finals and seven of the crookwell Cup finals from resumption to 1959-60 season, which proved to be the final year of ACT Cricket Association competing in the competitions due to a number of reasons. A blow to the competition was in 1948 when New South Wales Cricket Association created the Illawarra Cricket Council, meaning that ACT had now lost its strongest opponent, Illawarra, who had won two of the first Burns Cup titles since the resumption after the war. The loss of Illawarra certainly weakened the competition. And this also weakened the desire and commitment of many ACT players to compete against a weaker opposition. Once again, the topic of ACT cricket, direct affiliation to New South Wales Cricket Association was on the agenda. And in 1959, the ACT sought a meeting with New South Wales Cricket to discuss the future form of its affiliation with New South Wales Cricket Association. In effect, whether New South Wales Cricket would give ACT direct affiliation with New South Wales Cricket Association, allowing ACT to withdraw from the Southern Districts and ACT Council. Several meetings took place over the ensuing few months and years with the New South Wales Cricket Association country committee fearful of the makeup of the council if its strongest association, the ACT, withdrew. ACT maintained its affiliation in 1960-61, but did not compete in any of the Cricket Council competitions. Finally, in August 1961, New South Wales granted ACT direct affiliation with New South Wales Cricket Association. Therefore, the ACT ceased To be a member association of the council which it had revived in 1935. The council advised the New South Wales Cricket Association no tears would be cast by the other affiliates. ACT's decision to leave the council was one of the two most significant and most beneficial decisions that the association took in its first 60 years. Releasing ACT from the shackles of a prescribed program against weak opposition in a limited area on grounds of uneven standard, and giving it the opportunity to enter a wider world where standards were higher and challenges accepted. Walter Hammond's MCC team, which visited Australia to resume Test cricket after the war, played the Southern Districts of New South Wales at Manuka Oval on the 27th and 28th of December 1946. The local team included three Canberra players: Paul Hurigan, captain; Ginty Stevens, and Fred Johnston. The MCC dominated, making eight for 465 declared, and had the locals four for 11 when rain washed out play on day two. 12 months later, on December 27 to 29, 1947, India played seven districts at Marnika Oval. A total of 4,700 spectators attended over both days. Stevens was again selected, along with Merv Walk, Jack McNamara, and Peter Robertson. India were not a strong team in that era, but won the game comfortably. Three years later, in December 1950, the MCC team, led by Freddie Brown, again played a Southern Districts team with a crowd of 2,900 present over the two days. Three ACT players, Terry Freebody, Bruce Robin, and Jim Backen, were selected. MCC made 180 batting first, which Southern Districts replied with 164. MCC were three for 281 in the second innings when the game finished. The inaugural Prime Minister's 11 match was played on October the 22nd, 1951, when Prime Minister Robert Menzies answered the call of an increasingly frustrated ACT Cricket Association about the inability to be allocated a match against touring test sides to play a local ACT side by New South Wales Cricket and the Australian Cricket Board. Don Emerton, the son of then ACT President Ian Emerton, explained more in an interview with Matthew Higgins.
7: After the war, cricket became much more than a secondary item in the Emerton household. Dad became president of the ACT Cricket Association and his two most important objectives were to get the ACT out of the Southern District Cricket Association so that it could stand on the Own feet and to bring top-class teams to Canberra to play against our growing talent. In both instances, he found dogged opposition from the New South Wales Cricket Association. From what I heard when he came back from his missions to Sydney, they were being very difficult. When I heard, at first hand over the dinner table, his close mate, Scouty McMillan, who was a Vice President of New South Wales, telling Dad, that if ACT went it alone, powers of being in Sydney would ensure that the ACT would be excluded from any future visiting teams. That was to have a stroke of good fortune. When he and Prime Minister Menzies were in the parliamentary library one evening selecting books for their respective wives, Menzies often turned up at a great game in Canberra. He'd walked down from the lodge to Maning Oval. He inquired of Dad as to how the ACT Cricket Association was going. And Dad took the opportunity to tell him of his problems uh, with New South Wales, particularly of his failure to get uh, the ACT included in the forthcoming West Indies Tour in that respect uh, we we, we'd had in canberra uh, back in 1937 the english tour played new south wales country after the war the visiting english side also played in canberra with the west indies coming we were to get nothing the pm asked how he thought he could help He he was very sympathetic out of that came the idea of a one-day match against the Prime Minister's 11. So that was the the very beginning of the 51-52. They they spoke about the idea at length, and Menzies thought, well, it wanted something like the Scarborough Festival that used to follow the Australian tours in England, a game where the one-day matches and they scored a multitude of runs. The idea would be that Menzies would select a team He'd include a couple of good Canberra cricketers in it. Dad jumped at the, this idea and immediately offered the ACT Cricket Association's willingness to do the Woolly organisation. So your father obviously had quite a friendly relationship with Robert Menzies. Yes, he did, day-to-day relationship. PM spoke to him about cricket. And when the teams were selected for the various matches, the prime minister would invite dad to his office and they'd talk about who the prime minister was thinking of inviting and- So they were the selectors. They were the selectors, yeah, yes. It raised a reasonable amount of money and I don't know what the financial arrangements are now, was for charity. I admired him enormously.
1: Jim Bacon, who played in the second Prime Minister's 11 game in 1954, was also heavily involved in the organisation of these matches during the Menzies era, as explained by his son Graham Backen.
8: To understand the involvement in 1951, I think I've got to expand a little bit on Dad's arrival in Canberra. This was followed by an appointment in 1951 to the Prime Minister's Department. The branch that he started in was the Ceremonial and Hospitality branch. The position was created for the purpose of working on the forthcoming royal visit of King George that wasn't to happen because poor old King George passed away. That position that he was appointed to was to help celebrate 50th Jubilee Year of the Foundation of the Commonwealth of Australia. He had a few things to keep him occupied. So this period coincided with the election in 1949 of the Right Honourable Robert Menzies to Parliament again for the second time. At this time, Ian Emerton a friend of Dad's was the deputy clerk in the Senate. He was also the president of the ACT Cricket Association. Well, it just so happened that the Prime Minister Menzies and Ian Emerton bumped into each other in the Parliament House Library in August 1951, and Menzies inquired what plans the ACT Cricket Association had for the upcoming season. Emerton, replied with some disappointment. The Australian Cricket Board had recently released their program for the upcoming West Indies tour to Australia. Canberra had been left out of the itinerary. And this was especially disappointing as every visiting team had played a game at Manuka Oval since the Gubby Allen MCC team in 1936-37. So the conversation transpired into a suggestion that the PM could suggest to the Australian Cricket Board that PM's 11 match could be played against the West Indies in Canberra. PM knew most of the board and he thought he could probably influence their decision. On the same day, the PM Menzies ran into Jack Fingleton, a parliamentary press journalist and a veteran of 18 tests. Menzies used his considerable influence to invite Fingleton to captain the proposed PM's 11 team. Subsequently, he returned to his office. He rang the chairman of the ACB the Australian Cricket Board, he made his suggestion that Canberra match between a Singleton-led PM's 11 should commence the West Indies tour. Reluctantly, Oxlade agreed to the match with the undertaking that PM Menzies would cover the costs and only resultant profit would go to legacy Canberra. Menzies advised Ian Emmerton of the decision and a committee was formed. Chairman Ian Emmerton and Secretary would be Jim Backen, who worked in his department in the ceremonial hospitality branch. So dad had been a regular ACT representative player, had played against the MCC in 1950, and he understood cricket. So he was ably positioned to coordinate arrangements for the match. He had close liaison with the PM, and his role in the PM's department involved organising ceremonial and hospitality events, especially for visiting dignitaries and royalty. Dad, therefore, was responsible for arranging the dinner, the menu, which was usually at the Hotel Canberra. It was hosted for the teams and other other guests after each match. Dad was responsible for the travel and the accommodation bookings for the PM's team. Accommodation was also at Hotel Canberra. Prime Minister Menzies did have his favourite players and people he respected greatly, and a number of them actually stayed at the lodge. Dad was also responsible for the photographic record of the two teams taken prior to the games with Menzies looking resplendent, seated in the middle of the front row. Essentially, the match was pre-planned organized, and organised by Ian Emerton as chairman and Jim Bacon as secretary. Dad was secretary for the, all the ministers, Prime Minister's era games from 1951 to 1965. In regards to the selection of the players, Emerton and Backen were often asked to sit with Menzies while he was deciding who he would invite to play in his teams. I believe also that the PM consulted extensively with his driver. His driver was Alf Stafford, previously having played first grade in Sydney for St George. Alf is credited with facing the first ball bowl at the new Marnica Oval in 1930. Focus was made on batsman selection in the selection meetings. And in that, Menzies wanted stroke playing, to be the feature of the day's play. Menzies considered the event a festival match, as played in England. He had re- reassured the chairman of the Australian Cricket Board that he would not select and therefore disclose any secret weapons to the enemy. He reassured the chairman he would select a few players who had retired from chess cricket, several who were still playing and a couple of members of parliament. And three, uh, he would bolster that with three local players For the games in 1951 and 1954, one local player was selected from the RNC, the Royal Military College. Selection as one of the local players in the PM's team, I know the deep pride that he would have felt. Dan was um, a fanatical cricket follow-up player to mix with and play cricket with Bill O'Reilly, Lindsay Hassett, Richie Benno, Ian Johnson, Keith Miller, Neil Harvey, would have given him considerable satisfaction. I was at this time only 17 months of age, so I do not have a recall. What I have is specifically the memory of one of my primary school teachers who constantly reminded me of the joy he derived from being at the 1954 match when Dad took the wicket of Sir Leonard Hutton, caught by Keith Miller. I have the photo of Dad bowling that very ball. On the evening prior to each PM's 11 match, the Prime Minister would host a dinner for the team at the lodge. Some of the team were accommodated at the lodge as well. The story goes from David Stafford, son of uh, Alf Stafford, the uh, PM's driver, that the night got a bit rowdy in 1954 and it got out of hand when the captain, Lindsay Hassett, demonstrated his batting on the dining room table. This event followed on from the 1951 occasion described by Sir Sir Robert in his 1970 book, The Measure of the Years. He describes his intention by having these dinners to allow his team to get to know each other. Yeah, as stated earlier, Dad uh, was involved in, in his role as secretary to the committee for all seven games between 1951 and 65. Dad and Sir Robert, also shared an enjoyment of what was Sir Robert's favourite white wine, that being Lindemann's Kirkton Chablis. The 1970s Menzies book that I mentioned earlier, The Measure of the Years, paid particular thanks to Ian Emerton, Charlie Morrison, and Dad for their role in organising, through generous and splendid work, Prime Minister's 11 matches. Events that were truly great events and reflected the Prime Minister Menzies' great cricket passion. In 1978, on the occasion of the death of Sir Robert Menzies, Dad was deeply saddened, but also wanted to be involved with the organisation of his state funeral. Dad's boss soon after received a very warm letter of thanks from Dame Paddy, specifically highlighting Dad and others involved in the occasion.
1: The matches were very well attended, with the peak crowd being 11,000 in 1963 when Sir Donald Bradman captained the PM's 11 in his last game of cricket. Prime Minister Menzies completed the official opening prior to the game on February 6 of the newly constructed Bradman Pavilion at Manuka Oval. Menzies announced his retirement from Parliament in January 1966, only five weeks after the match against MCC. There would be no more Prime Minister's 11 matches for 18 years when newly elected Prime Minister Bob Hawke instigated its return in 1984. That concludes Episode 2 of A Look Back on the 100 Years of Cricket in the ACT. We look forward to you joining us for Episode 3, which will cover the period from 1965 to 1980.